I don't know if this will come to a, a, as a surprise to any of you or not, but, but when I was going uh, to school, um, especially in high school and college, I wasn't always top of my class. And I don't know if you could have guessed that about me or not. Um, but let me explain why. Um, if I was, to be honest, a lot of the things that we studied were just plain boring. I, I don't know if you had that experience. Not that I was so intelligent that, oh, I already know all this. It's just, it, it didn't engage me, it didn't intrigue me. Uh, and, and to show you what I mean by that is, if, if we had a class that I especially enjoyed, or if I had a teacher that was very engaging, or uh, one that could hold my interest, I could pretty much get A's if I wanted to. Uh, it wasn't a, a lack of intelligence, uh, probably more than anything, it was a lack of motivation. Um, but amongst the subjects that I studied, and there were some good ones, there were some bad ones, the one that I tended to kind of enjoy was math. Um, for some reason, and I know we're all wired differently, but uh, the numbers kind of came easy to me. Uh, and there was something about solving math problems. It, it was intriguing to me. I, I found the challenge enjoyable, even fractions. Uh, a lot of people just absolutely hate fractions. Um, but, but I didn't really have that big of an issue with them. Now, I'm talking about years ago. Uh, obviously, with the gray hair, you know that I did a, probably a different kind of math than what we're doing today. Now they're teaching this common core math. And I'm not sure, even with my affinity towards the numbers and so forth, how well I would do. I don't know a lot about it because I'm not that involved in it. My kids aren't in school anymore. But it seems to me the new math uh, lacks precision. There's a lot of guessing and a lot of estimating, at least that's my perception of it. So that doing math nowadays is, is really a challenge. In fact, it's such a big challenge. Well, watch this. Yeah, I need some help. What's the matter? What's my math? Was your mouth? No, it's my math. I have to do it. Will you help me? Sure. Where do you live? No, it's my math. Yeah, I know it. Where do you live, though? No, I want you to talk to me on the phone. No, I can't do that. I can send someone else to help you. Okay, um... What kind of math do you have that you need help with? I have, I have takeaways. Oh, you gotta do the takeaways? Yeah. Alright, what's the problem? Um, you have to help me with my math. Okay, tell me what the math is. Okay. to get help with any of my subjects in school. I, I don't know if this little guy got in trouble or not, but uh, obviously math was not his strong suit. Now, it's interesting uh, that when we come to the subject of sanctification, as we plow deeper into the more applicable side of it, not only does God help us get a better grip on what sanctification is all about, but it, it is kind of like a math equation. And one of the things that we've been learning, and, and while it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith, and while it's the Holy Spirit who compels our lives of sanctification wanting to reflect the life of Christ, 
there's also this aspect of what you put into it is also partly dependent on what you get out of it. In, in the sense that as we study this parable this morning, we're going to see a variance, not just in how the Word of God works on different people's lives, but even when it works on our hearts and amongst Christians, not everybody's life adds up to be the exact same uh, result when it comes to sanctification. And not only should we embrace and understand why that is, but then also the things that we can do to, if you will, uh, our part in this amazing doctrine of how God created us to reflect our Savior. The lesson is now the explanation of our gospel lesson. And when we jump ahead just a little bit in chapter 13 of Matthew, when Jesus explains, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or, per or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And it's especially that last verse that I've had a lot of questions over the years. Pastor, why is there a difference in how the word of God works on our hearts? And that really is at what is the heart of this lesson. Okay, to fully embrace and understand what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, there, there's a couple details we should understand right up front. This lesson happens about one half of the way through Jesus' public ministry. It's what's known as his uh, second northern tour of ministry up in the region of Galilee. And as you can see there, I've indicated for many of the people, his popularity is still on the rise, but in other places, not so much. One of the reasons why Jesus is spending so much time up north at this time is because down in the southern region of Judea, the religious leaders have reached that tipping point where not only do they hate him, but they are starting to make plans and intensify uh, their ways of trying to get rid of him. And we should also be aware of that's happening somewhat up in the region of Galilee because at this time, Jesus has already been rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. So what he did was he moved his base of operation to the city of Capernaum. And that's where much of these lessons, especially what follows now in the Gospel of Matthew, it's based out of this city. And Jesus will kind of jump from there into these other regions, not only as he's reaching out to the people, but we also find his uh, specific teachings with his 12 disciples starting to intensify. We're on the downhill side of his ministry, and these men need to get their heads around what's going on. To facilitate their education, Jesus teaches this series of seven parables. And one of the things I find intriguing is Matthew is the only gospel that records all seven of these. In fact, the only other gospel that records even one of these, the mustard seed, we find in the gospel of Mark. Now, when you understand why the gospel of Matthew was written, and specifically for the Jewish people, these disciples included, you begin to understand now why this fits into the intense training of the disciples. There's also this question that's before us. Why does Jesus now at this point in his ministry start to teach with more and more parables? And there's really two explanations. Because there are more and more people now standing against him, parables worked in a way where they wouldn't give his enemies a lot of ammunition to use against him. Uh, 
And you can even think of that. When Jesus is ultimately arrested and stands trial, they had to bring false charges against him. Uh, not only because he's the perfect son of God, did they not have any evidence uh, stating why he was worthy of death, but they basically didn't know a lot of what he was teaching because they couldn't figure it out, and they weren't present when he would explain the parables to them. There's the flip side of this too, and the disciples actually between these two sections asked, now why are, you, why are you using parables? And we have to understand something about the educational system for those disciples. They grew up in an era where basically the religious leaders could say whatever they wanted and the people were just supposed to believe it, whether they understood it or not or whether it was true or not. And, and by this time, uh, we're very much aware that a lot of the things they were teaching about God, about God's love, about God's plan of salvation was as wrong as it could be. So Jesus uses parables in basically two ways. They're basically a, a verbal picture, and pictures help a lot of people understand, especially the deeper truths of Scripture. But then parables also use this method of comparison. This is like that, and that helped Jesus, uh, as he teaches the disciples, to grasp these things about God and about faith and about how our relationship works. And interestingly enough, even with the very first of these seven parables, the sower and the seed, uh, what we're studying today, Jesus already introduces and starts to educate them about the doctrine of sanctification because he wants us to understand God wants a relationship with us. God wants to spend eternity with us, but he also has a plan and a purpose for how we live our faith here in this lifetime. And so that's what a lot of this explanation is about. Now, I know a lot of people have probably heard lessons on the four different types of soil. They obviously represent four different types of people. And there's, there's some clarifications we need to make. First of all, Jesus will explain the things that aren't so obvious. And I don't know if you ever noticed, he doesn't take time to actually explain, explain the things that are very obvious. Like in the parable, the sower is obviously Jesus. He's doing his ministry. He's out and about in the world sowing the seed. And the seed obviously stands for the gospel message, the precious word of God, which explains to us how much God loves us, what God has in store for us, and, and how God rescues us. <clears throat> you notice in this explanation, Jesus doesn't go into any of that. And part of my thinking is he wants to spend more time focusing on the result of his ministry and the gospel lesson and how it touches and affects our lives. Now, before we actually get into talking about those four different types of soil and the represent a, how they represent four different kinds of people, there are some clear delineations. First, on those two, uh, the path and the rocky soil, and then on the thorny soil and what we would call the good soil. And then even between the thorny soil and the good soil, there's another delineation, and it's important that we understand these details. Otherwise, this parable can be somewhat confusing, um, not on the face of it, but there's a logical problem that, that takes place if we don't understand what Jesus is teaching and how he teaches it. And we'll spend just a little bit of time with that this morning. Okay, as we dig into the soils, the first one is that path, the hardened soil. Uh, you know, you've seen it in your own life. If you have a path through your yard that you walk every day, eventually it becomes almost like concrete. And if you threw seed on it, you obviously know nothing would grow there. Jesus is using that to talk about the kind of person who might hear the word of God, the precious gospel uh, message of his love and salvation, and it absolutely has no effect. And this raises the first question. Um, I've always been taught, and I'm sure you have, been taught too. The word of God, the gospel message is very powerful. And we heard from Isaiah, it, it does what God wants it 
to do. Which then leads to the human question, so are you saying God didn't want those people to actually believe it? And, and the answer is no, emphatically no. God in his word says he wants to save everybody. It, which leads to that other question that a lot of people ask then, so why, why does that word work in some people and not in others? Uh, and there's something in this description of this soil that helps to answer that for us. Um, Jesus goes on to explain how quickly that seed is taken away from that person. Uh, the birds of the air will come, and you've seen them pick up uh, seed if you've put it on the ground and it's not buried appropriately. And in the same way, that precious gospel message is taken away from this person. But there's something in the verb that, that often is overlooked a detail, and it's the way the verb is rendered. And basically it says, this can only happen if the person allows it to happen. So what that explains to us is the devil is no match for God. God is all-powerful. The devil is not. And while the devil is crafty and does possess a certain amount of power, God assures us that he can't take our faith away from us. That's a promise from God. But there's something in here that tells us how this does happen. If a person is so hardened against God, if he is so confirmed in his unbelief, what he literally is doing is inviting the devil into his life to run interference against that powerful message. That's why some and not others. This soil is so compacted and hateful against God that even the precious gospel message that God loves us so very much, it doesn't just bounce off. The person basically gets rid of the seed out of his life. That's the first type of soil. Jesus now talks about this next kind of soil. There's some dirt there, but there's a lot of rock. And the way Jesus explains it, this person actually is brought to faith. This person actually receives the gift of faith, but it's very short-lived. The first one would have had no sanctification whatsoever. This one would have just had the most minute amount because where there is faith, there is sanctification. But Jesus goes on to say, okay, then there's problems. Problem is, is that this soil never really takes root. It never deepens. And no doubt, if you've ever planted anything on rocky soil, as soon as the heat is turned on or there's a lack of rain, those plants, those flowers wither and die. And, and that's what Jesus says, when trouble comes, when persecution. And that's also a reminder that this person did have faith for at least a few moments. He's talking about people who are suffering because of their faith. That's persecution. That's a cross. Under the first bit of duress, that person crumbles and dies. And again, this is already talking about something that we've studied throughout the sanctification series, the part that we're not always so comfortable with. Once we receive the gift of faith, once God firmly plants in us the message of that love, the Holy Spirit also tells us he will do his part, <clears throat> but then there's also a part for us to do. That's what we call the accountability. That's the part where we continue to be fed. That's where we let our roots deepen by not only the hearing of the word, but the sacraments as they empower us with the precious message of what Christ has done for us. And if we cut ourselves off from that, if we refuse to be accountable for our spiritual lives, at least as far as humanly possible, this is the end result. And again, the sanctification is limited at best and almost non-existent. Now, it's when we come to this third type of soil, and I said there's a clear delineation between the two because on the left side, there was no faith and very little faith. On the right side, you should understand both of these types of soil actually do have faith. Both actually have lasting faith. Both have saving 
faith. But now there's a delineation between the end result of the sanctification. And the thorny soil, Jesus says, once again, there's the way the verb is rendered. It tells us why this fruit never ripens to its full maturity. I like to use the picture of the green tomatoes. It's probably the best visual I've ever come up with to explain the seed that falls amongst the thorny soil because it does produce fruit. Green tomatoes are a, a fruit, but they're an immature fruit. And again, with the verb being as it is, the problem isn't with the powerful seed. The problem is with the soil, meaning that this too references the accountability uh, on the part of us humans. Once we are made children of God, God says, now I want you to be a child. I want you to make choices as my children. I want you to continue to respond to my love as my children. But if that child rebels, and we all have that sinful nature, we've heard that over and over again, if a child allows the sinful nature to control more than the new man nature, then that fruit will never ripen. And while this type of Christian certainly is rescued and will spend eternity in heaven, they never produced the fruit that God had hoped for while they lived here on this earth. That's just the sad reality of it, and that's how the numbers add up. Again, there's some sanctification, but the parable teaches us there could have been so much more. Which ultimately brings us to the one type of soil that we love to talk about, uh, the good soil. But this also offers another vexing question because up until this point all of the responsibility of whether sanctification happened or not whether faith was maintained or not falls to the soil and all of a sudden when you get to the fourth type of soil if you logically follow that through then we would be giving ourselves credit for salvation and we've learned again and again throughout the series that's not how it works if you wanted to follow the human logical conclusion of all this our sanctification would fully be our responsibility and we wouldn't be talking in terms of a limited amount of accountability and that our sanctification still rests on the power of the Holy Spirit and the feeding of our faith through the means of grace. But that's not how it works. We've learned again and again through this series, all the credit for our salvation and our sanctification ultimately goes to God. So now how can we switch gears when we come to the good soil? We've had this in a previous lesson, but I would like to emphasize it and repeat it again. In this language, there are two words for good. Uh, kalos, which is used here, and then agathos is the alternate, which the Holy Spirit doesn't use here. Kalos describes a goodness that is brought about by external means, and it makes perfect sense when you apply it to this parable. You know that you might have a plot of ground, and you can start throwing seed out there, but it's not really going to grow much of a crop until you get out there and you till the soil, until you get out there and you pull the weeds, until you get out there and you pull out the stones and the rocks and you, you work it and you add the nutrients to it and you water it and then it becomes good soil. That's the perfect description of the Christian heart. Because of our sinful nature, the soil of this heart was filled with weeds, thistles, rocks, and even hardened parts. And it's not till God the Holy Spirit works on our hearts that he actually makes it into a good plot of ground. Agathos, the other word for good, is specifically used for God and the things that God in perfection creates. It has the intrinsic good value, and only God qualifies as that. But everything else that God touches can be made good, including you and me. And then that brings us to this other question. So if God's working equally on all of our hearts, then why do we have different amounts of harvest? 
Well, we can think this through logically. I, I grew up working on a farm, and, and it always amazed me that in the middle of the field, usually, or the low spots is where you would get the more bushels per acre. On top of the hill, not so much because it was always drier ground. And around the edges of the field, again, not so much, because that tended to be the more hard-packed areas, because that's where you drove the tractors, or that's where you worked from, or that's the area that you mended the fences. And so this all logically works out very well. Now, as we apply this to sanctification, we have to understand the same thing is true of Christian slash human hearts. A lot of it still goes back to that concept of accountability that we had studied earlier. And the more we are exposed to the Word of God, the more we are exposed to the nutrients of the message of God's love, the more our hearts are watered through word and sacrament, and we feed and feast on the body and blood of our Savior, the more that ground is able to produce a greater harvest. And that's the math equation that Jesus is offering to the disciples. His first and foremost priority is to save us, to rescue us. That's why he came, to pay for our sins. But we can't stop there because part of his mission was to bring back to us the life and the liberty of actually living the way that God designed us to live, that God created us to live so that we ultimately will bring glory to his name and so that we can truly do good to one another. In fact... The real problem is that part of us desperately would love for our faith and our sanctification to be this constant, upward, steady growth and incline. And originally, that's how we were created, in perfection. If we had continued or if we were able to actually eat from that tree of life, it would have been just that. That's exactly how God created the system to go. Every single moment of every single day would have actually been to God's glory and to our good. But of course, Adam rebelled against it, and you know as well as I that it's the right-hand side of our faith and our sanctification that our lives have become. It's a roller coaster ride. One day we're up. We're some of the strongest Christians we've ever been, and, and the next day we're down. It's like we're not even sure we can, we can trust God because, much like in the parable, not only does our sinful nature fight against us, but we're dealing with a broken world. And of course, there's always the temptations of the devil. He knows he can't defeat God, but he sure tries to defeat us. And if we open ourselves to that, if we refuse the accountability of actually listening and putting into action the precious gospel seed in our lives, we're going to have down days and moments. The perfect example of this actually comes in the very next chapter of Matthew's gospel. Because after Jesus was done teaching these seven parables, he sends them out in a boat onto the Sea of Galilee. And if you're familiar with that region at all, the Sea of Galilee was well known for the quick and sudden storms. And that's what happened to them. As the disciples are out there rowing across the lake, all of a sudden a storm comes up and they're scared to death. Well, Jesus is also out on the lake, but he's meeting them walking on the water. They see him from a distance and cry out to him. And he says, be calm. I got this. Don't worry about it. How often has he said that in our own lives? Peter's not convinced. I'm not sure it's you. They think he's a ghost. So Peter calls out, if it is you, Lord, then permit me to walk on this water. And here's the part I think most of us miss with this account. Peter walks on the water. He's up here with his faith and with his sanctification. He is producing 100 bushels per acre. But as he takes step after step, all of a sudden he takes his eyes off of Christ and he starts to look at the wind and the waves and his heart is filled with doubt and fear and he goes down. He sinks. Now there's still faith there because Peter's first response is, help me, Lord. It's the cry of a Christian. 
He says, without you, I'm, I'm going to die. And of course, Jesus reaches out to help him. But, but that, in that moment, Jesus, or Peter's like a 30 bushel per acre kind of sanctification. And in our lives, we're up and we're down. We're back and we're forth on these things. It's not this steady upward incline we would like it to be. And so this parable means all the more to us when we understand what Christ is trying to teach his disciples. You've been given a precious gift. Nurture it. Make sure it is truly blessed. There are days when we can run this race without breaking a sweat. And maybe it's the life situations we're in. Maybe it's where we're at personally. And then there's other days. I don't know if this happens to you. It feels like every step you take, you trip and you fall flat on your face. This parable offers the opportunity for us to ask that question, why does that happen? Why, why can I do so well one day and not so much the next? easy to walk a path that you traveled before. The familiar gives us comfort. Even difficult terrain, we learned how to navigate. Sometimes the world leaves us in a place we've never seen before. We can't stay where we are, but the way isn't clear. Faith is a gift. It's given to help us. It's not easy, but if we don't give up, eventually the way becomes clear again. that's believing that leads to seeing. We find ourselves in different life situations. We find ourselves facing different difficulties and temptations. And while I recognize that most, if not all of us here, would like to put ourselves always and only in the category of the good soil, thanks be to the Holy Spirit and His work, the truth of the matter is, is we don't always fit that description. Because we do still possess a sinful nature. We still do live in a very broken and corrupted world. And, of course, you know the devil has as his number one priority to take as many of us along with him to spend eternity in hell rather than to enjoy the glories of heaven. So the reality is, is that we do waver in our faith, and as our faith wavers, so also does our sanctification. When our faith is not strong, we have a lot of trouble saying, praise God. When life is throwing its curveballs at us and we're facing challenges that either we've never faced before or maybe it's the same old temptation that we're fighting again, it's hard to say thank you, God. When this world seems as if it's tearing itself to pieces and falling apart all around us, it's hard for us to say, God, you've got this. I, I trust you. But that's why we have words like what Paul wrote to the Galatians. He says, don't give up. He says, this is, this is a long, long race. And though our lifetimes as compared to eternity don't seem like that long of a time, 70, 80, maybe 90 years really is, it's a long time to fight a fight. It's a long race to run. And it's good that the Holy Spirit chooses to give us these words, don't become weary, especially considering the, the place and the time we find ourselves in now. The more as we go on with the virus, and you're probably sick and tired of hearing it, but, but recently I've come to discover 
I think the virus is doing far less danger and causing problems for us physically as much as it's hurting our heads and our hearts and even harming our souls. Um, there, there are Christian congregations being torn apart over all of the issues related to that, and society itself seems to constantly be at each other's throat. Uh, and recently, we've been able to give thanks and praise to God for bringing so many people out of a, a country like Afghanistan. And you can argue the politics of it. I, I really don't care to. I think what's more important is that we give pause to the fact that a lot of Christians have been killed in the process, and there's still a lot of them over there behind the enemy lines uh, that we need to pray for. I can't imagine the temptations that they're facing. You imagine waking up this morning, and the very first thought on your mind would be, I wonder if I'm going to make it through today. Uh, sometimes we have those same things, maybe less physically, but in the last few years and months of our own nation's history, it feels like we're more isolated. It feels like we've lost our civility. It, it feels like we're literally at each other's throats, and, and God would have us be the peacemakers. God would have us offer a few calms, a word, uh, words of calmness and, and trust. And, and let's, let's just be honest, that takes its toll on us after a while. And so it's good that we have the words of Isaiah, even though we might not see what God's will is in this moment, in this time, God, God does know what he's doing. From the very beginning and even before time itself, God had a plan. And nothing can stop God's plan. And though we might be up and down in our faith and up and down in our sanctification, you might be on a roller coaster of emotion and spiritually. God says, please, just trust me. I have made a perfect plan, and I am going to follow that plan to the very end. Because the end of that plan means you getting to spend eternity with God and living the life for which you were created. Not here in this destroyed world, but with God and in his presence forever. We will ultimately and finally be that creation which God himself decided we should be. I can't wait when every last word out of my mouth is God-pleasing. I can't wait for that moment when every thought that goes through my head does nothing but glorify God and adds value to your lives. I, I can't wait until the day when these hands will create only what is good, not because somehow externally something had to change and manipulate them for me, but because that's who I am and that's what God made me to, to be. And I pray you look forward to that day as well. You see, it's that same tree of life that has always been our rescue, the cross that Christ gave his life for. That's where the seed of the gospel comes from. That's where the sure knowledge of God's plan as well as his love plants deeply into our hearts. And how that affects each and every one of us and the way in which it causes us to live our earthly lives, which ultimately echoes in eternity, well, whether you're good at math or not, it is ultimately a simple equation. When you add the precious love of God, even to these broken lives, you will always come up with that which serves our Lord. Or maybe I should just simply say, do the math. Sanctification is like a child maturing to an adult. The transition from childhood to adulthood does not occur overnight, but rather it proceeds at an imperceptible rate. Edwards notes that this represents a believer's spiritual growth. Obstacles, difficulties, and struggles accompany the putting away of childish things. Immature believers respond to difficulties and persecutions as a shallow stream going over rocks and trees, noisy and irregular. Yet with time, believers grow deep like a river and flow over obstacles without a sound. 
The process of sanctification is also seen in young fruit. It is in its rightful place on the tree branch, yet it is green and not fit for consumption. But as it bears the sun's heat, it ripens and approaches perfection. The development of an embryo points to the process of regeneration and sanctification. It is the new heart that ceaselessly pumps until the new creature is fully formed. It is the same with a new believer. The new heart, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, drives the saint onward in sanctification until the goal of perfection is reached.